May our hearts indeed truly not be exalted, but may they be humble before the Lord. We are looking at Amos 8 as we progress toward the end of our series through the book of Amos. Uh, we are doing this entire chapter today, so we have one chapter remaining after today. I will be reading to you Amos chapter 8. If you're able, would you please rise out of respect for God's word. This is indeed the inspired word of God. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst of wa for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord God, speak to us today, we pray. Speak to us and cause us to hear your voice. So often in the past, we and others have not had ears to hear. May it not be the case today. Touch our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears in such a way that we would know you, not just cognitively, not just academically, but personally and relationally through Christ Jesus, 
our Lord, for it is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're getting toward the end of the book, like I said. And as one commentator put it, as we move through the book of Amos, we've gotten to the point where the long summer of God's patience has come to an end. And there has been no harvest of repentance. And so there's a problem, a problem that God has to deal with. And we see in verse 1, this is what the Lord God showed me, Amos says. He says, the Lord God, he's very specific. In the Hebrew, that's the, the Lord Yahweh. He says, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. We've, we've seen a series of of visions, you'll recall in chapter 7. We saw a a vision of locusts that were coming. We saw a vision of of fire that was coming. And then finally we saw a vision of a plumb line that was sent. But now we see a fourth vision that has been given to Amos. It is a vision of ripe fruit. And you may have noticed in your bulletin, by the way, there is an outline for the sermon. If you'd like to follow along, we've even got some Fill in the blanks to keep you uh, engaged if you want. I'll try to make sure we point out to you when those blanks come up and when we can fill those in. But, But judgment is indeed coming. The vision that God gave Amos is a vision of ripe fruit. Verse 1, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. I'm like, good answer, Amos, right? He showed me this, and I said this. It makes sense. Now he says a basket of summer fruit. And when, when we think about summer fruit, you might have different thoughts that come to your mind. Uh, for me, the first thought I had was, was maybe a family picnic or a family barbecue and having, having a, a bowl of fruit there, fruit salad. And it's just so delicious and wonderful. and It's really kind of a joyful idea idea colorful and tasty and wonderful it kind of made my heart happy to have this vision of summer fruit perhaps you think of going to the farmer's market on a nice breezy day and the sun is shining and it's not too hot and it's just a wonderful day and you're enjoying such a a pleasurable experience Well, I think you know where I'm going with this. This is not the kind of idea that is being communicated when we look to the words of Amos here. Instead of kind of anachronistically looking back at at how they would would have heard it from from our perspective, we need to look at it from their perspective. We need to understand what what they would have heard, what they would have known. Uh, Amos, of course, we remember, was, was a dresser of sycamore figs. He knew what it meant to have fruits that were in the summer. And, and if you look to the Word of God, you'd see that their biblical background says things like this about ripe fruit. Joel 3.13, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. Right? Or in Mark 4.29, when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. What, what happens when a fruit is ripe? Well, it is cut off the vine. It is removed 
from its source of life. Remember what Jesus says, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? The fruit, which is, is ripe and full and, and beautiful, is killed, essentially, by taking from the tree or, or from the vine. And that is what is happening here. It's interesting. We see point B here, that judgment is indeed coming, and we see a people ripe for judgment. He says, then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon the people of Israel. This is lost in the English. But the word for summer fruit and the word for, for end sound almost identical to one another. So, so we don't have that summer fruit and end. Those don't sound similar to us. Right? So we totally lose this in the translation. But a, a Hebrew-speaking ear that would have heard what Amos was saying would have picked up the idea here. Right? And in fact, some versions of the Bible try to get at this with the way they translate this. And, and the NIV actually does a wonderful job of this. What the NIV's translation of this goes like this. It says, this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? Amos says, a basket of ripe fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. See, he says, the fruit is ripe. It's summer fruit. It's ripe. And the Lord says, that's right. But you know what's really ripe is my people Israel. We use that phrase sometimes, don't we? A ripe old age, right? What are, if you're at a ripe old age, that means you're kind of getting toward the end of the line, right? And, and that is what he's saying. He's coming to the end. The end has come upon my people Israel. He says, I will never again pass by them. Now remember, these people are very religious people. Lots of times we think, well, you know, I believe in God. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? I'm supposed to be religious. I come to church even. I, I give money to church. I even sometimes serve at church and do different things. Surely I'm religious enough, right? I do all the things that I'm supposed to do. But remember the context of Amos again. Amos is speaking to a people who are very performative in their religion, right? They, they check off the boxes that they're supposed to check off. It doesn't affect their hearts. It doesn't change their lives. It doesn't make them into different people. And God looks at them and says that, that this is worse, worthless, what you're doing. You're, you're just putting on a show. It's just a veneer. It's a, a mask that you're putting on. You, you are being hypocritical here. And that's why in chapter 5 he said, you'll recall, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. You hear what he's saying here? He's saying, when you come to church on Sunday morning, it doesn't please me at all. In fact, he goes on from there. He says, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. Right? You, you give these offerings, I don't want them. He says, I won't look upon them. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen. He says, you might be singing all the right hymns, right? You're not singing any of those, those really bad hymns that are theologically incorrect. You're not singing any of these ones that, that aren't the right instruments and the right music. You're singing all the perfect hymns, but I hate the sound of them coming from your lips. Why? Because 
your life hasn't been changed by the truth of the gospel. You are still the same people you were before. It is all a show you are putting on. It is not worship that is coming from the heart. So he says what he wants. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. As Kevin DeYoung puts it, what the Lord hates is any notion that the performance of mere religious ritual is a substitute for personal obedience and faith working itself out in love. You see, he's saying if, if you're not actually having a faith that works itself out in obedience and in love, love of God and love of neighbor, then it is just a show. It is not for real. And that's what was happening then. And so the Lord says, because your worship is meaningless, because there there is nothing real to it, those songs of the temple shall become wailings, he says in verse 3. The Lord is patient, but eventually his patience runs out. Eventually he comes to an end of his rope. And here is the time when he says, okay, I'm done. You want to live your life on your terms, then live your life on your terms. I will withdraw. I will give you over to the life you want. I will no longer be there for you, to save you, to rescue you, to care for you, to be your God. That's what we see in Romans 1, the same type of situation, right? Where, where there is a stubbornly sinful people who return to their sin and return to their sin and refuse to listen to God and have their lives changed and impacted and affected by him. And finally God says, okay, have at it. You have it your way. Now, judgment is indeed coming. Point two, judgment is indeed deserved. And your first fill in the blank there, judgment's indeed deserved because the people had an unholy disregard for prophets. Right? That's what Amos was. He was a prophet of God. P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Right? He, he was a prophet of God who had come to speak to the people on behalf of God. And he says... Hear this in verse 4. Now, biblically speaking, we need to remember that that hearing is not just a matter of of having an an auditory sensation, right? He's not just saying, have your ears work as they are supposed to work, right? And and have this register, these these sound waves register in your ear. That's not what he's saying, right? There's a sense in the Bible where hearing means obeying. Right? Think, think of a parent saying to their child, listen to me. Right? He's saying, do what I say. Right? There, there's something more than just hear what I'm saying. It's, it's do what I say. And that's what God is saying when he, when he says, hear this. He's saying, do what I say. And this isn't the first time that Amos has used this language. Right? Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word, 
that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Chapter 7, verse 16. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Right? The problem isn't that they haven't been given the chance to repent. Right? It's not that they haven't been given the chance to, to turn away from their sin. It's not a, a matter of ignorance. Right? The Lord had sent prophets before Amos to them. That's why Amos needed to come, because they hadn't listened to those prophets. And now Amos comes, and time and time and time again, he's saying, hear this word, and they will not hear him. They have what can only be called an unholy disregard for prophets. But we see point B also, they have an unholy focus on prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S, right? They, they don't care about prophets, P-H-E-T-S, but they do care a lot about prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. They care so much about that, they have this unholy focus on prophets, that is, prophets over their concern for the poor. That's point one under that. They have this focus on prophets over concern for the poor. Verse four, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Right? Generosity should mark our lives as Christians, should it not? Right? It, should be, it should be the hallmark of our lives. Generosity and kindness and graciousness. Right? We who have been given much. We just read it together in our unison scripture reading. Right? This idea that the servant had been forgiven and how great was his sin in not forgiving a debt considering the greatness of the debt that he had been forgiven of. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you this. There is no debt that is owed to you by anyone that is greater than the debt that you owe to God on account of your sin. And he, through Christ Jesus, has given you forgiveness for that debt. You have been forgiven a debt that is greater than any debt you can imagine. For us to hold something against someone else then at that point, to not be generous to others when God has been so generous with us is to betray a lack of understanding of how great that debt truly was. It is to betray a lack of understanding of how generous God has been to us. To not be gracious to others shows that we don't actually understand the graciousness of God. We, if we are to truly be Christians, must have a concern for others, and specifically a concern for the poor. Right? We say things like, the Lord has provided and every good gift is from God, but, but then we kind of live as if, well, except I really worked really hard to get them. And, and we, we think we live in a pure meritocracy, right? So if I have a lot and you have a little, it's because I worked hard and you didn't. Or because I'm really smart and you're not. Right? But, but even then, you know, who is it that gave me the strength to accomplish the things I accomplished? And who is it that gave me the wisdom, the smarts to achieve the things that I achieved? But God. We have nothing that is of ourselves. It is all from God. We must realize this truth. 
They had an unholy disregard or unholy focus on prophets over worship of God. That's the second point under there. Right? They were concerned about profits. They wanted to make money. We need to make money. And they cared about that more than their worship of God. Right? They say here, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale. Right? They had a rule that said you can't work on the Sabbath. You can't do business on the Sabbath. And so they're saying, man, I want the Sabbath to be over so I can go make some money. That's their focus. The Sabbath is kind of this, this obstacle, this hardship, this, this sacrifice that they have to make, right? This hardship that they have to endure. If only I can get back to where I can get to making money. That's really their God at this point, right? It's their focus above all else is we need to go make money, money, money. I know it's hard for you to imagine this as an American in the 21st century, but there's actually people like that, Right? We're never like that, of course, but, but there's other people like that, right, who, who elevate finances to be really their ultimate, right? And we, we see here that's exactly what they're doing, but, but consider the context of, of the Sabbath law, the Sabbath rule. I think even, even if we don't, I, I, we don't have time for a whole sermon on the Sabbath. We could do a whole sermon series on the Sabbath, but, but just this principle, understand that, that when God gave them the Sabbath law saying that they they had to take one day in seven for sabbath for rest instead of working consider the context that they're coming from they've just been delivered from slavery in egypt right and and they had no weekends right they didn't get two weeks of vacation they didn't they didn't have sick days right they were working seven days a week 52 weeks a year back-breaking labor they were slaves. And out of that context, God delivers them and says, no more will you work seven days a week. Take one day and rest. Rest and find your rest in me. And, and so we see them saying, here, no. I'm not going to find my rest in you. Instead, I want to make money. Because money is my God. They have this unholy focus on profits over integrity of character, right? They say that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. That's the idea there is, is that they're going to, to obviously put their thumb on the scale a little bit. They're going to, when they're selling things, uh, kind of, tip things so that they're not really selling as much as they say they're selling. They're going to charge a little more than they should. I, I just, as I heard this, I was thinking of the musical Les Miserables. I don't know if you're familiar with the musical. It's actually my favorite musical. Uh, you might not like musicals at all, in which case you say, well, whatever. But it, I do like musicals, and that one's my favorite. Um, there's a, a line or a part in it. There's a character who is uh, the the owner of a hotel, and he's called the master of the house. And he, he, is, he is as just repugnantly terrible as you could possibly imagine. And everything he does is just vile. And, and so he's got the, this set of lines in this one song 
about him, the master of the house, they go like this. Master of the house, keeper of the zoo, ready to relieve them of a sou or two, watering the wine, making up the weight, picking up their knickknacks when they can't see straight. And it goes on, food beyond compare, food beyond belief. Mix it in a mincer and pretend it's beef. Kidney of a horse, liver of a cat, filling up the sausages with this and that. Right? He's, 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 it's like, oh, that's terrible. But that's, that came to mind for me. That's what the Lord is speaking of here. This kind of mindset that says, I'm going to cut every corner I can. I'm going to, I'm going to lie about the weights. I'm going, to, I'm going to try to do whatever I can to cheat people out of money because, because I want it. I'm going to lie. I'm going to not have character. I'm going to not have integrity. Right? And that's what they were doing. It said that, that money talks. He is here not valuing people. Or they are not valuing people. Right? They're, they're valuing profits. That's the fourth one, overvalue of people. They don't care about the other people. They don't care what's good for them. They only care about the money. Judgment is certainly coming. Judgment is certainly deserved. Finally, point three, judgment is indeed comprehensive. We tend to talk a lot about God's grace, and we should. It's a wonderful thing, but we ought to remember that God is a holy God. He is a, a holy God, and he, he cannot stand sin so we see here, point A underneath the, that one point underneath, God's judgment is indeed comprehensive. We see the presence of God's anger. We think that he looks at our sin sometimes and he's like, ah, it's not that big a deal. He'll get over it. No. The Lord has sworn, verse 7 says, by the pride of Jacob. It's a funny phrase there. He's sworn by the pride of Jacob. What does that mean? Well, so far he has sworn by himself, chapter 6, verse 8. And he has sworn before that by his holiness, chapter 4, verse 2. Right? And, and what he's done in those things is he's sworn by these things which are infinite, these things which are, are as great as they could possibly be. There's nothing larger, nothing greater than himself and his holiness. And yet they have not heard. Yet they have not changed. And so he says, okay, I'm going to swear by something even bigger than the biggest thing. You get what he's saying here? Jacob is Israel. He's saying... Okay, if swearing by my holiness wasn't enough, if swearing by my very being isn't enough, I'll, I'll raise the level to something even higher, something even greater. I swear by your pride. See, he's saying their pride is the only thing that's as great as his greatness, as his magnitude. So great is their pride, and so great is our pride as well. Right? Every time we sin, it is a matter of pride. We're saying, I, I know you say this, God, but, but I think I know better for myself than you know. I think I should do what I want to do as opposed to what you want to do. I think I should be at the center of my life. I think it should be about me and not about you. And that's what we say every time we sin. 
God says, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Now, there's two ways to look at this real quick. One is this is absolutely terrifying, of course. God knows everything I have done, and he will never forget it. And yet, there's also a sense in which it's kind of comforting, isn't it? If you've ever been wronged, if you've ever had someone who has, who has done evil against you, it's nice to know that, that the Lord will take care of things, right? I don't have to seek vengeance. He will take care of it. He won't forget about it. But we see here that God, the same God who says vengeance is mine, he intervenes dramatically. He's not just a passive observer of injustice. He will intervene. He says, shall not the, the land tremble on this account? And everyone mourns who dwells in it. And all of it rise like the Nile, be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. You see what he's doing here? He's intervening and he is removing his favor. This is the removal of God's favor on your on your uh, outline there. First we saw the presence of God's anger, now we see the removal of God's favor, and specifically the removal of stability, right? That's what an earthquake is. An earthquake, the ground, which is supposed to be stable, which is supposed to be solid, begins to shake, right? And that's what's happening is there's this earthquake, there's this removal of stability, and then what does he remove next? He removes light. Right? It speaks here of a literal removal of light. Uh, at, at noonday, the, the sky goes dark when it's supposed to be at its brightest, right? He says it's going to go dark. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This literal removal of light, which is, of course, a, a metaphor of sorts for, for what is going on. He says, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth in every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son at the end of a bitter day. This terrible, horrible darkness that is descending upon them in God's judgment. And then the worst judgment itself is coming. This is the third one. God removes himself. That's the worst thing. God removes himself. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Right? He has sent all these prophets, but now he said, okay, I will stop sending the prophets. And that actually for 400 years, right, there would be no prophets speaking to the people of God. They would, they would be left without him speaking to them. He who had, who had dwelt in their midst, who was there with them. And, and now instead of that close relationship that we're created to have, that joy of fellowship with God as we walk with him in the cool of the day in the garden, it is gone. And he has departed. They, they realize it. They should realize it. That, that, that he is absent from them. And they should feel that keenly. How terrible that judgment is. We think maybe that's what we want, right? Some people say, I, I just wish God would get away from me. But that actually is the last thing in the world that we need. We're created to walk with him. And then finally, we see one more removal here. It says, not just an unsatiated thirst for the word, um, but there will be a removal of water. Verse 13, in the day the lovely virgins and young men shall faint for thirst, right? The idea here is the young people, even the young and strong and, and vigorous people will be 
will be thirsty. They, they won't have strength because of their thirst. It will, it will leave them dehydrated. And those who swear by guilt of Samaria and say, your God, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. And so that brings us to the end. And it doesn't seem like a very promising passage at this point. Indeed, it's all about judgment, but there is some good news in it. I want you to consider these three conclusions. First of all, the Lord is very serious about sin. That's our first conclusion. The Lord is very serious about sin, right? It, it kind of echoes in these last three verses, Psalm 1, right? You remember how Psalm 1 talks about Blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or seat, sit in the seat of scoffers, right? And there's this kind of progression of, 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 of walking and then standing and then sitting as things slow down. Here in verse 12, 13, 14, we see a progression again, a wandering and then a fainting, growing faint, and then falling, never to rise again. This is the kind of end that God has for sin. So we need to act justly. We need to act rightly. We need to show integrity. We need to be light in a world of darkness. But here's conclusion two. If we are to know what it means to walk as the Lord would have us walk, we must hear his voice. Right? We must take into account what he has to say for us. And, and, and J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, let us then take our Bibles afresh and resolve by God's grace henceforth to make full use of them. Let us read them with reverence and humility, seeking the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Let us meditate on them till our sight is clear and our souls are fed. Let us live in obedience of God's will as we find it revealed to us in Scripture. And The Bible will prove itself both a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. What a wonderful exhortation from J.I. Packer. But here's the problem, the third conclusion. As we look to God's Word, we're left to realize that we don't act justly. We don't order our steps according to God's word. And we do stand in line to be judged. Right? We compare ourselves to other people maybe and we think, well, I'm not that bad. I'm a whole lot better than the average person. But when we compare ourselves to the perfect plumb line of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord, we see very readily that we are wanting we, too, are ripe for judgment. But here's the good news. Jesus took our judgment upon him. Did you see it in this passage? Did, did you realize, do you remember? Think back to Matthew. In Matthew 27, what is it that Jesus, or that Matthew 27 tells us as Jesus is hanging on the cross? It says, now from the sixth hour. You know what the sixth hour is? That was noon, right? So from noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Right? Do you remember what we saw in that prophecy? What, what was it there that, that Amos had said? He had said, shall 
He said, I, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And in the ninth hour, we read in Matthew 27, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus hung on the cross, he felt utterly separated from God as opposed to being in perfect fellowship with him, no longer hearing his voice as he once had. It was what he beheld, what he felt, what, what we deserved and what he received was this famine of the voice of God. One of the bystanders hearing him say this said he's calling Elijah and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And we'll come back to this in a minute. But the others went on to say after that whether Elijah will come and save him. Let's see. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then what happened? You remember? The rocks shook. The earth quaked, right? Shall not the land tremble on this account? And Matthew doesn't say this specifically, but John does in his account of it in John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing it was all finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when he had received the wine, he said, it is finished. It is done. It is completed. It has come to its end. Remember where this passage started? The end has come upon my people Israel. Jesus says, I've taken the end upon myself. In fact, the Greek word there, to telestai, essentially means it is paid in full. It was the actual ver or the word that was used to, to designate a debt being paid fully. He said it is paid in full. And he stamped our debt there, paid in full, having taken the whole penalty of God's wrath upon us. So Jesus paid it all, not some of it, not most of it, but all of it, so that we might be able to say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can, we can sing with the Gettys as they do in Christ alone. There is no guilt in life and no fear in death. Right? We can walk in the joy of our salvation, knowing that we are saved by Christ Jesus, by his grace, by his atoning death, absorbing the wrath of God. And we can live our lives to his glory now and forevermore. May it be the case that each one of us does this. May we do it out of love for him. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, our God, we, we pray indeed that you would show us more and more how you have fulfilled all things. You have fulfilled the law perfectly. You have been that perfect plumb line that has shown us what it is to be completely righteous in every way. And you have shown us our sin in that as well, in that we do not match up to that. But even though we deserve to be punished, we deserve the full judgment of God, you too have taken that upon yourself. 
becoming sin that in you we might become the righteousness of God. So we offer up our thanks, but may our thanks not be just empty words, performative religion, but may it be from the heart. May our worship be in spirit and truth. And may we give glory to you in the way we live our lives this day and forevermore. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.